0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book and print cultures. Stamping you are listening
0: to a podcast by the Trinity Longmore Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating ten through the
2: community. Created by Coral Cora. Cora. Cora Change
0: The Hub is about impact.
3: 90%. The Hub is for everyone. Good
0: afternoon, everybody and welcome to this afternoon's session on, from this joint symposium on partition and its legacies, organized by Trinity College Dublin and Queen's University Belfast. My name is Cheryl Lawther. I'm from the School of Law at Queen's and it's my pleasure to chair this afternoon session on the political and social legacies of partition. And it's not only an opportunity to hear from three fantastic speakers this afternoon but also it gives us a very timely opportunity to reflect on the creation of the state of Northern Ireland, but also its ramifications through the generations, I'm thinking particularly here about Brexit, as we'll hear later on, but also the legacy of divided pasts in Northern Ireland, and indeed the unsolved questions of the Northern Ireland conflict, but also, as we see in the media headlines at the moment, the changing state of flux that the main political parties in the Northern Ireland Assembly are in as well. This afternoon, we have three speakers. I'd like to take the opportunity now to introduce them. Our first speaker this afternoon is Dr. Gladys Gagnon. Gladys is a reader in the School of Social Sciences, Education and Social Work at Queen's University, Belfast, and her research focuses on the role of religion in conflict in Northern Ireland and Zimbabwe, Religion in Ireland, Evangelicalism and the Emerging Church. Gladys's research already has included two books about evangelicalism in Northern Ireland and an award-winning book about the emerging church. And the overall art, over, the overarching objective of this research strategy is to understand the socio-political roles of religion, as Gladys will elaborate on later this afternoon. Following Gladys, we have Professor Katie Hayward. Katie Hayward is Professor of Political Sociology at Queen's, and she has two books forthcoming this summer. One on the Irish border for the SAGE series, What Do We Know and What Should We Do? And a co authored book on Northern Ireland, A Generation After the Good Friday Agreement. Two extremely timely outputs. In 2019, Katie was one of three academics appointed by the UK government to the technical expert panel of its Alternative Arrangements Advisory Group on Brexit. And in 2020, in recognition of her work, Katie received a special award from the Christopher Ewart Briggs Memorial Prize for her use of Twitter to eliminate and explain the implications of Brexit for the island of Ireland. Katie will then be followed by Dr. Alwyn Perdue. Alwyn is a senior lecturer in history at Queen's and she specializes in the social and economic history of 19th and 20th century Ireland. Within this framework, Alwyn's work uh, focuses on poverty, welfare and public health in the industrial city. She's also worked on the history of landed estates in the north of Ireland, from the end of the famine until the onset of the Northern Ireland Troubles. Dr. Purdue is actively engaged in research and teaching in public history and something that she has been instrumental as regards introducing to Queen's. And to that end, Dr. Curdue is the founder and director of the Centre for Public History and of the MA in Public History at Queen's. Before I hand over to Gladys this afternoon, I'd just like to make a few housekeeping announcements. So we have, as I said, three speakers this afternoon. Our speakers have 10 minutes each, which leaves us with about 35, 40 minutes for questions and answers at the end. For those of you who weren't here this morning, you will know that the chat bar is muted. So we would ask you to respectfully reserve your questions until the question and answer session begins. But also just to remind you that this afternoon's event is live streamed on Facebook. So this is perhaps an opportunity uh, to remove any pets or something similar from your offices. It's not my pleasure to hand over to Gladys to start us this afternoon.
3: Thanks very much, Cheryl, and uh, thanks for the invitation um, as well to speak today. So I am going to speak about the legacies of the churches. So a century on from Partition, the public role of religion is much diminished. But recalling the church's political and social power is necessary if we're going to reflect on what their legacies mean today. So my contribution will proceed in three steps. First, reminding us of the church's power at Partition. Second tracing the church's legacies through the troubles, and third, asking how churches can transform their ambivalent legacies today. So while some of the historical examples used may be familiar to many of you, I think it's necessary to bring them to the forefront of our minds to aid our reflection today. So the church is at partition. From the earliest days of the Irish Free State, the Catholic church controlled education and health, politicians deferred to bishops, and Catholic social teaching was reflected in the laws of the state. The Catholic church was even given a special position in the 1937 constitution. Censorship of books and other popular media was widespread and mass going and popular devotions amongst the the population were taken for granted. Tom Inglis characterized Catholic dominance as a moral monopoly. And more recently, Derek Scali has described it as a church state project To establish the Irish as the quote the best Catholics in the world. Scali even compared the way the church and state governed to the communist regime in East Germany arguing that it created an atmosphere where citizens couldn't recognize or were afraid to challenge abuses of power and coercive control such as industrial schools, mother and baby homes, and Magdalene laundries. In Northern Ireland the Protestant Unionist majority quickly asserted its dominance. So the Presbyterian Church as the largest Protestant denomination in the North exerted particular influence on politics. Liz Fawcett has argued that Presbyterianism functioned as a sort of folk religion, not only amongst its adherents, but also through inflecting other denominations and the wider evangelical movement with its theological concepts, such as the chosen people and the promised land and, and so forth. The Orange Order, a pan Protestant organization that emphasized its religious purposes was firmly embedded in the Ulster Unionist Party through its position on the Ulster Unionist Council. So between 1921 and 1969, every prime minister of Northern Ireland was an orange man. And we already heard <laughs> this morning ref- referring to the qu- famous quote of the first prime minister, uh, James Craig, that all I boast of is that we, wa- that we are a Protestant parliament and a Protestant state. So, religion structured segregation at almost all levels of society, including education, where the churches were able to scupper government's original plans for interdenominational schools. So, as such, religion effectively organized people's everyday lives, shaping and limiting their social networks in exclusionary ways. Religion also gave the Protestant Unionist Loyalist and the Catholic Nationalist Republican identities content and meaning, with each community constructing their religion and their people as better than the other. So now tracing the church's legacy through the Troubles. uh, Given religion's historical entanglements in politics and communal identity, the churches were implicated in the Troubles. Less nuanced accounts may have described the Troubles as a religious conflict. Well, I'm not making that claim today. It is worth recalling the career of the Reverend Ian Paisley, founder of both the Free Presbyterian Church in 1951 and the Democratic Unionist Party in 1971. So perhaps unique in world history, Paisley, in founding his own church and his own uh, political party. Um, But Paisley's public persona was fearsome and fiercely anti-Catholic. Some loyalist paramilitaries have even claimed that his rhetoric inspired or provided cover for their violence. Steve Bruce explained Paisley's prominence as evidence that evangelicalism comprised the core of Ulster Protestant identity, underscoring the importance of religion, even for those who never read their Bibles or attended church. At the same time, the churches attempted to contribute to peacemaking. Positive analysis of this and focused on the work of individual clerics or interchurch organizations. John Brewer's major study commended these mavericks, as he called them, contrasting their courage to the timidity of the largest denominations. Margaret Skull also pointed to rifts between the Catholic hierarchy and priests and religious sisters on the ground, with the latter viewed as having had a more positive and immediate impact. In, cron- in contrast, Dukat Sandal argued that religious leaders articulated what she called, quote, an inclusive public theology of citizenship. And again, another quote, a public theology of inclusive governance, which pushed uh, political leaders along the road to peace. Maria, Maria Power's more recent analysis of the peaceable kingdom theology of Delhi also tends more towards this view. But Brewer dismissed such statements as speechifying uh, arguing that they may have actually let the churches off the hook uh, by preventing them from engaging in more radical grassroots work on the ground. And in my own research, I found that many regular churchgoers had no awareness at all of what their church leaders or their own denominations had said about peacemaking. Christians in the Republic displayed limited interest in contributing to peacemaking during the Troubles, with notable exceptions, including the Christian activists who started the Glen Cree Center for Reconciliation. The Irish state and its willing citizens had identified itself with Catholicism and projecting that identity as pure, holy and not Protestant helped create a society that facilitated or refused to recognize the abuse of its most vulnerable citizens. It is true that church abuse has been common in other countries. But the character and extent of the abuse in the Republic should be considered, at least in part, a legacy of how the Irish Catholic Church and the state reacted to partition and its anxiety to construct itself as superior to the British state and the jurisdiction on the other side of the border. So now I raise the question of transformation of these legacies. So during Pope Francis's 2018 visit to the Republic, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar spoke of a new covenant between church and state for the 21st century. And I quote him, he says, "'One in which religion is no longer at the center of our society, but in which it has an important place.'" His remarks reflected the church's diminished relationship with political, pow- political power, which is a reality, both North and South. Indeed, Raghurst designation of religion as important may have jarred with an increasingly secular or culturally Catholic Republic where mass attendance has declined from 91% in 1972 to 66% in 1997 to around 35% in 2016 with figures much lower in urban areas. In Northern Ireland, Catholic attendance declined from 81% in 1998 to 46% in 2019 and Protestant attendance declined from 52% to 46% over the same period, so significant declines. However, at the same time, comparatively speaking, this island remains one of the most religiously practicing in Western Europe, and church leaders and bodies still have limited ac- still have access to, though limited limited influence over policymakers. Given what I've said so far. The secularization of the island could be read as a sort of liberation. On the other hand, we should remember that over the last century churches have helped provide meaning and purpose for countless individuals and contributed to rich cultural traditions. Christianity also inspired many of this island's citizens to devote their lives to the pursuit of peace and justice. Concepts of forgiveness, reconciliation and hope have been part of Christian peacemakers practices and public discourses over the years, and today's Christian activists could build on these legacies to help address a pressing societal issue, dealing with the past. Churches may even have unique gifts to offer this process, including creating spaces for lament or utilizing healing rituals, which may be beneficial for some people. But for this to happen, Christians must acknowledge their own destructive legacies or to use the old fashioned religious language, repent for their sins. For decades, there has been little evidence of this, but there have been some striking recent examples, including the Presbyterian Church's Considering Grace Project, which resulted in the 2019 publication of a book that included self-critical reflections on the church's failures and the church leaders groups, groups, 2021 St. Patrick's Day statement, which included what I think is the church's most comprehensive confession ever for their historic contributions to division and violence. So I'm going to read that short uh, confession now. It said, as Christian churches, we acknowledge and lament the times that we failed to bring a fearful and divided society, that message of the deeper connection that binds us, despite our different identities as children of God made in his image and likeness. We have often been captive churches, not captive to the word or God, but to the idols of state and nation. Now, confessions are only a first step towards addressing the church's ambivalent legacies and restoring some of their societal legitimacy. Moreover, the church's reckoning with their own past must take an expansive all island view that accounts not only for political violence and communal division, but also church abuse and its relation to these other dynamics. Given the absence of meaningful government action, including an apparent refusal to implement all the relevant provisions of the Stormont House Agreement, civic groups, including churches, may need to take a lead on dealing with the past. Together, civic groups could advocate victim-centered approaches that ensure stories from all perspectives are heard and honored By confessing their own sins, they also could advocate and model a process of remembering that has a clear purpose, to stimulate societal reflection on preventing such tragedies from happening ever again. Thank you.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Um, It's a great pleasure to be here with you, and um, I'd like to thank Queen's and Trinity for the invitation. Uh, It's great to see, obviously, cross-border cooperation on such an important matter. So uh, my area of research is in European integration and on the Irish border. I've been doing for 20-odd years. I've been very busy these past few years talking about Brexit, and these past few weeks I've been quite busy talking about partition, I don't know if you're familiar with the Radio 4 program. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Um, I reference it here, not because I don't have a clue at all, uh, but rather because I'm going to try and perform a feat uh, that's uh, equivalent to one that they do on that program, which is singing one song to the tune of another. So bear with me, and I think you'll, you'll see what I mean. When a country decides to partition itself, the stakes must be high the British Prime Minister faced an invidious choice. A decision about what should happen on the island of Ireland had to be made against the shadow of increased violence or at least the threat of it. The topic had troubled his predecessor and had divided parliament. His party urged him to act decisively and to relieve Westminster from the weary burden of the vexing Irish question. Adding to the portentous nature of the decision was the fact that Britain's relationship with its European neighbors had changed forever. Old alliances and trust were gone and trading conditions across the channel had undergone huge upheaval. The prime minister weighed all these things in his decision to partition the United Kingdom. I am in fact, you've probably realized, referring to two prime ministers acting a century apart. In the Government of Ireland Act 1920, David Lloyd George drew a border across the island of Ireland Which was at the time integrated in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. In the Withdrawal Agreement Act of 2020, Boris Johnson drew a border down the Irish Sea within the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Both acts sought to manage an extremely complicated situation in what they thought was a pragmatic way. Of course, drawing a border is never a mere act of practicality. Boundaries represent, sometimes in retrospect, historical processes of division and consolidation. Borders can bring barriers to some types of movement, but also create bridges for others. But being made as they are by human decision, their mere existence has social and symbolic importance. We should not be surprised therefore that new border controls within the United Kingdom inevitably have profound political as well as legal implications, not to mention the economic and social ones. The pitiable thing about Northern Ireland is that it is a place obsessed with its history, but ultimately helpless to do much about it. This is because its history is never just about Northern Ireland per se, but rather about Britain and Ireland and their relationship to each other. Oftentimes the frictions and the bonds in that relationship have been caught up in wider European affairs. At some momentous points in history, Ireland has had allies on the continent. On occasion, they have come to Ireland's aid. Historians may look back on the process of the UK's withdrawal from the EU and consider it to be a most noteworthy instance of European solidarity. All 26 member states agreed to prioritize the concerns of Ireland in the Brexit process. Even though it proved to be a heavy and perplexing encumbrance, the European Council's determination to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland was an ambition that it managed to maintain. And this ambition was shared by the United Kingdom. The border on the island of Ireland had already been hard, of course, in its century-long existence. It had been a customs border between the UK and Ireland, and it had been a fortified border too uh, during the Troubles. There were two processes that helped to soften that border towards the end of the 20th century. European integration, which reduced border frictions across, across Europe between member states, and the peace process which strengthened relationships east-west between Britain and Ireland and of course north-south. Brexit ran counter to one of these processes and posed a very deep threat to the other. The agreement the UK and EU came to to avoid a hard border was born in this context of unexpected disruption and uncertainty. The protocol on Ireland, Northern Ireland in the withdrawal agreement was made in a joint effort to find flexible and imaginative solutions to the conundrum. It marks a new type of arrangement for the EU with Northern Ireland de facto in a single market for goods, and new arrangements for the UK's internal market. This, In essence, this means customs regulatory checks and controls on goods moving across the Irish Sea, implemented by UK authorities on the EU's behalf. It's an extraordinary arrangement. Both sides are very conscious of the risks involved. Given the nature of the problem and the history of Northern Ireland, it was inevitable that implementing the protocol would prove to be even more difficult than negotiating it. This too is familiar. In 1921, the implementation of the Government of Ireland Act saw the creation of Northern Ireland against a background of tumult and no small amount of incredulity and suspicion. Few on the island of Ireland had wanted or even to some degree anticipated such an arrangement. Nationalists, particularly those caught on the wrong side of the Irish border as a then minority community, believed that London had been swayed by threats of violence from unionists. Few could imagine the arrangements as anything other than temporary, bringing as they did disruption to long existing economic and social ties across the island. The parallels with today are striking, albeit this time for the other community. In 2021, the implementation of the protocol on Northern Ireland comes in a context of growing unease and mistrust. Uh, Recently, um, a poll we conducted uh, through Lucid Talk um, looking at Opinions on the protocol show that only 5% of people in Northern Ireland uh, trust the UK government, uh, uh, particularly in relation to Northern Ireland's interests in the protocol. Unionists believe now that London was swayed to avoid a hard Irish border by threats of violence from Republicans. They hold out hope that the consent mechanisms will be exercised by MLAs at the end of 2024, which they get to vote on whether to continue alignment to EU rules. Might see the end of the Irish sea border altogether. In sum, this border is becoming a live and polarizing topic in Northern Ireland politics, again, something that's very familiar. There are, however, two very significant differences uh, between 1921 and 2021. When the Government of Ireland Act came into effect, it was against a backdrop of violent conflict. The um, Irish War of Independence didn't finish for months afterwards, and then it was followed all too quickly by the Civil War, not to mention sectarian conflict in the North. In 2021, the paramilitary organizations engaged in violence during the Troubles are still on ceasefire, albeit not um, completely inactive, and their ceasefires are maintained uh, so far by purported commitment to the 1998 Good Friday Belfast Agreement, although this has been put in doubt recently. The 1998 agreements that the protocol seeks to uphold in all its parts um, is uh, having to, is um, sorry, this is the agreement that the protocol seeks to uphold in all its parts, even as the scaffolding around the accord is shaken by the earthquake of Brexit. This relates to the second difference. The decision to put border controls between Britain and Northern Ireland was not a domestic act this time by the UK government. This time it's a joint concern of the UK and the European Union. The UK withdrawal agreement means on the one hand that the EU no longer constitutes the broad context for the peace process. Northern Ireland is outside it now despite the wishes of its majority. But that same withdrawal agreement also makes the EU a player with a decisive role um, and decisions uh, are being made right now this moment about what those controls will look like um, and the effects that they will have. But we know that borders are not ultimately just about controls they were also about relationships. And what happens across the Irish Sea has implications, not just for relationships within the United Kingdom, but also within Northern Ireland, and of course for Britain and Ireland, uh, and now more broadly for the UK and the EU. Uh, Border friction brings costs, we're becoming increasingly aware of this, but it also brings increasing political tensions. The better and closer the relationships between Northern Ireland and its neighbors, East and South are, the more stable the conditions for peace. This was true in 1921, this is just as true today. And so the better the prospects, um, if we continue to cherish these relationships rather than emphasize the borders, the better the prospects for a future that is more prosperous and less violent than the one that we experienced in the wake of 1921. Thank you.
2: Last month Belfast once more appeared on on people's news feeds around the world as rioting in in parts of the city made headline news. For many of us in Northern Ireland um, this brought a painful sense of deja vu that familiar combination of of despair that that scenes like this were playing out on our streets again and frustration at having to to explain once more to concerned acquaintances, yes, the city is safe. It's only in parts of the city. We're not all on fire. Um, But these scenes also did bring a a deeper sense of disquiet, I think. Um, The context, uh, as Katie has just explained in which Northern Ireland's latest spate of what's been described as recreational rioting occurred has shifted considerably. Brexit has predictably proved to be a destabilizing and disruptive influence. And at the same time, we are now facing the 100th anniversary of the partition of Ireland and the creation of Northern Ireland, something over which the population remains fundamentally divided, with no consensus as to what we should be remembering, if we should be remembering it, and how. So it's certainly an interesting time to think about issues such as memory, commemoration and identity, about the relationship between the past and the present, between our history and our politics. And importantly, about the part that public history can play in helping us confront difficult or contested pasts, facilitating a more engaged and informed approach to contemporary issues and and looking ahead to the future. And if I could ask Francesca to bring up uh, my first slide, Uh, moving on to the next one. Lovely, thank you. I think the first question we need to ask is, does public engagement with history actually bring any value? Surely we've had more than enough history in this place. Should we be encouraging people to look back? Many would, would actually challenge whether we should be engaging or indulging, as some might say, in collective remembering at all. And would argue with David reef that forgetting is of primary importance if we're ever to move forward. There certainly are real problems surrounding the often suspect way in which history is used in this place and not just here, but around the world. Misunderstandings of historical contexts can lead to erroneous and even dangerous assumptions about the past that so easily find their way into contemporary discourse and shape the way in which people see themselves and others. We see this so vividly on the streets of Belfast for the past continues to resonate in the present. Past events are called upon, they're used in ways that are reductionist or selective. Moments from history are appropriated and depicted in simple binaries in order to reinforce identity, to to denote community and belonging for us on the inside or the otherness of those on the outside and to legitimize a particular present view of society, culture and politics. In such a challenging and divisive context as this then, surely any attempt to remember or explore something as contentious as partition, to engage public audiences in exploring the lived history of the period is fraught with danger. The past surely is best left alone. But while there's danger in the misuse of the past, there's also a very real danger in collective amnesia. I was taken aback, for example, um, by the results of a survey just a few years ago that appeared in the Washington Post that showed how unaware so many American teenagers were of the Holocaust. Many of them had no idea of what it was about at all. Given the fact that these young people have been growing up in an age of increasing support for far-right movements and at a time of economic precarity as, as we begin to move out of lockdown and face the consequences of COVID, this absence of knowledge about the past is actually deeply alarming. In this era of fake news and fake history, I would argue therefore there is an imperative on us to work within the public arena engaging with public audiences to challenge and disrupt commonly accepted or distorted narratives. So as we here in Ireland lurch towards the end of our decade of centenaries facing probably some of the most contentious aspects of the history of 100 years ago, some of the questions I want to pose today are what part does public history or public engagement with the past have in all of this? Can cultural institutions in particular, whether it's arts, heritage, community initiatives and museums play a positive role in addressing something as, as challenging as the history of partition and in particular, what role can museums play? Is there power in collections of things, of objects to allow us to confront and explore contested perceptions of and responses to the past and to find aspects of the past and the present that we have in common? Is a museum there simply to confirm identity and help people value the culture that they have? Or does it have a purpose to challenge, to open the eyes and the mind to new experiences and different perspectives? So in response to these questions, um, we're seeing what I consider to be a really brave and quite exciting response to some of the more difficult aspects of our past taking place um, in the museum sector at the minute. I've had the the privilege over the last couple of years of sitting on the board of directors of the Irish Museum Association and seeing it firsthand some of the really exciting initiatives that are being taken right across the country from from Cork to Portrush. Um, to engage the, the public with these very, very difficult, very contested aspect of the past and its legacies into today and looking ahead to the future. In particular, uh, there's a growing uh, recognition that museums are not neutral spaces, rather, they are deeply political in terms of the objects they display, how they display them, and also their gaps in their silences. So museums, shouldn't pretend to be neutral. Rather, I think they need to see their potential to disrupt, to confront and to provide a space where uncomfortable issues can be faced and difficult conversations can happen. And as we begin to explore the history of partition and its impact on people at the time and it's sometimes bloody legacy over the past century and the shadow that continues to, pass, to, to cast over the future, How might museums use objects, use their collections to engage the public in exploring deeply contested or traumatic issues? By way of one example, I want to finish by looking at the shift in how the Ulster Museum in Belfast has been representing the history of the Northern Ireland Troubles, surely one of the most problematic and divisive aspects of Ireland's most recent past. As the next slide will show, um, many of you will be aware of the fact that in 1990s, uh, the Austria Museum launched its first attempt to deal with the history of the Northern Ireland conflict. It was admittedly curated in a very fraught political context, um, and it st- sought as the state funded museum to be strenuously neutral, saying nothing, offending no one. It had no objects, because objects are laden with value and significance. Rather, the representation of the conflict was based solely on a series of enlarged black and white images. But responses from the members of the public um, was lukewarm, to say the very least. Those who visited the gallery felt that in striving to be neutral, it said nothing. That in seeking to avoid offending anyone, it actually held meaning for no one. As the next slide shows, however, in November 2017, The museum signalled a very new approach that it was taking to contentious or divided issues in a very dramatic way by hosting the Weeping Window, um, an art installation that originated at the Tower of London to mark the onset of the First World War. And the installation made about 6,000 poppies cascading down the front of the Ulster Museum and across the lawn was dramatic to say the very least. Spaces for reflection were provided for people who came to see it. And guides were on hand to answer any questions or simply to sit alongside people as they reflected or responded in a whole range of ways to the poppies installation. Art installations and a rich and diverse cultural programme also accompanied this play, allowing for a meaningful exploration of cultural identity and diversity across the island of Ireland centred around this particular moment in history and how each of us responded to it. Now, given the extremely contentious nature of the poppy as a symbol in Northern Ireland and Ireland as a whole, this was a brave move indeed, and a clear statement of that ethos that museums may be many things, but it is not and cannot be neutral. Rather, as in the case of this installation, it provoked, it confronted, It challenged people's inbuilt beliefs and the framework through which they saw themselves and others. But it also provided a safe space in which people might be thus challenged, in which they may be willing to leave themselves open to to new ways of seeing the past and indeed the present. So moving on to the next slide then, from then the museum launched its new Troubles and Beyond Gallery, a very different approach to how it was going to represent the history of the conflict. It, rather than being just based on images, was based on a very rich range of artefacts from its own collections and also collected from the wider community across Northern Ireland. Some of the objects, the bomb disposal robot or political posters, paramilitary uniforms, jolt us very uncomfortably back into the violence and division of that time, sometimes dragging responses into our consciousness that we'd rather not have there. However, these objects are juxtaposed with artefacts from everyday life, such as the punk jacket or tickets to a Stiff Little Fingers concert, objects that remind us that life went on and that experiences that people had at that time were held in common, that we all shared, regardless of what side of the divide we found ourselves on. So I'm going to finish with one final slide and one final object, as it were, from the museum's collection, A photograph, a very powerful photograph. Um, I visited the new gallery on the day after it had been formally opened and I was drawn to this photograph, you can't miss it, it is blown up hugely and covers the entire wall of the gallery. Um, But it shows a a picture of families being evacuated from their burned out homes in the early years of the trouble. and they're carrying a TV. And that actual TV now uh, sits in, in the gallery in the Ulster Museum. And I was just standing in front of this uh, photograph and looking at it and looking at the people and looking at the trauma that they're going through. And I was thinking, you know, this is not my memory of the, the Troubles. I grew up in a leafy suburb in East Belfast. I was never affected by it. It's, this is so different and alien from, from my own experience. And as I was standing there lost and thought, I became conscious of the fact there was a man standing beside me and he was also looking at the photograph and just without moving or looking around he just said do you know i remember this so well i remember our family happened to gather up everything desperately as the street burned and run for our lives and he went on to talk about how his life changed from then how he went on to live in rural ulster got married and, and uh, you know had a happy life but you know, As we thought about how different our experiences were, we went on to talk about the reality of living in Belfast in the late 80s, about having to have your bag searched and the ring of steel around the city centre. And imperceptibly, as we looked at the subject, we had moved from two very different different positions to one that was shared, that was held in common. And as simply as that, we were on common ground. And it is in this, I think, that the power of objects lie. Here, that museums, I think, have such an important part to play in dealing with the legacies of divided and divisive, contested and traumatic pasts. To encourage people to step outside the comfortable ways in which they hold on to their own senses of the past. And to confront understandings that are in complete contradiction to their own, as well as discovering those that are unexpectedly shared. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much uh, to Alwyn, Katie and Gladys there for three incredibly rich presentations this afternoon. We have approximately 30 minutes left for a question and answer or comments to our speakers. Um, And I'd invite anyone to come forward from this moment onwards. You can either uh, come in over the audio or you can use the Q&A panel, uh, which is along the bottom of your screen. Perhaps while people gather their thoughts and uh, formulate their own questions, I might abuse my position as chair and ask the first question. Um, And my question uh, goes to you, Alwyn, and I really enjoyed that presentation there. And I was really struck by the idea that you put forward that museums should provoke and they should challenge. And I think that's something that I definitely agree with. But when we're trying to marry that up to the idea of public engagement, how do the two sit together? How can we encourage what is traditionally been quite a divided society, not quite a divided society, but a divided society to engage with the narrative of the, the so-called other or to, to open ourselves up to challenge in that way?
2: It's a great question, Uh, Cheryl. Thank you for that. Um, Yeah, I think that that is one of the challenges is um, museums in many ways can create the space, they can uh, host uh, events and and they can um, display um, aspects of the past, but how do we get Um, members of the community and into those spaces and how can we work alongside them in ways that actually really engage them in in some of those uh, difficult questions and difficult discussions Uh, and I think that's particularly compounded by the fact that museums are traditionally seen as very Middle class spaces—they're not of you know. Lots of people will say it's not for me. You know, I wouldn't be seen dead inside a museum. Um, and they're seen as boring spaces, and they're seen as dull and dry, and all the rest of it. Um And I think museums have to work very, very hard to to um, disrupt that perception. I think one of the ways in which they're doing that is to um, to actually take themselves out of that space, to take themselves out of of that. For example, you know, the the building on the the, the this Road and get into communities. And that, for example, is one of the things the Old Museum's has done very well, very effectively in, in the Troubles and Beyond Gallery part of what it does is to actually work with communities to, to take the collections it has out to community groups right across Northern Ireland and use those to, to encourage people to think about their own past, the own objects they have that are perhaps meaningful to them and to find shared spaces there in the community. Um, and I think that's something that museums across Ireland are increasingly doing and doing very effectively indeed. Um, as something I think we want to, to see more of. And it's bringing people together, I suppose, as well, in other spaces to have those conversations.
0: Super, thanks, and um, We're getting a few questions filtering in here. And um, related to that point, uh, we have a question for you from Brian Scott. Um, and Brian comments, that inevitably, the elements of any museum exhibition involves selection. Mm. So therefore, as a curator, how can a curator defend themselves from what might be an, an inevitable accusation of bias, or perhaps even what some would call the presentation of false news?
2: Yeah, and again, you know, brilliant question because you're saying as much by what you don't include by what you do include and every object that's on display has there's a decision that's made around that i'm not a curator uh so I, you know, obviously I, I can't really speak for the curati- curators i know but um I, I do know that in speaking to them that there's a very careful decision making process around um the integrity of every object that's there and why it's there and what the choice is and having a clear rationale for what it is that that object says and very of- often Um, there's a deliberate decision made around juxtaposition of objects that sometimes seem to almost jar with each other but it's in that jarring um, that that you're sort of lurched out of a comfortable space into maybe uncomfortable spaces to think differently about things so I think you know curatorial staff do uh, have to make very difficult decisions but Uh, there's a real professionalism there very often in terms of how they decide to present something and as long as there's transparency behind that process which i think um, matters quite a lot um, then you know that that choice is made in a very professional way
0: super thank you um to turn to you gladys we have a question here from jane Uh, Jane is asking, could you talk a little bit about other religions, Uh, so people from the Muslim community or the Jewish community, um, and how they have found their place and their experience in Northern Ireland since the 1920s?
3: Yes, Jane, uh, thanks very much. Um, As my presentation aptly illustrates, they have often been forgotten (laughs) or, or overlooked, and so thanks very much for raising that question. I mean, in Northern Ireland, as you may know, you know, for centuries, there's was a substantial um, Jewish minority whose numbers have declined um, in recent years, um, and then more recently both north and south, there has been so it's immigration that has, um, I suppose, it created at least a small growth of people from the, uh, from the Islamic faith um, and other religions, both north and south. I mean, the short answer is they are often <laughs> overlooked. Um, But then there's other aspects of it as well. They're often um, discriminated against or victims of hate crime. Even in the last few weeks here in Belfast, and the Jewish section of the city cemetery was vandalized, which looks like the police may be treating as a hate crime in that case. So there's that aspect of it um, as well. But also it should be said, I suppose, through, um, particularly through the island's ecumenical body. So either the national level um, inter-church structures like the Irish Council of Churches or Irish Interchurch church Meeting, there has been an effort to reach out um, to people of um, so-called, you know, non-Christian religions um, and include their perspectives and in dialogue, you know, both North and South, and particularly in the Republic of Ireland as well, where um, re- immigration of people um, of different Christian traditions and religious faith has been more than in Northern Ireland. This is Um, an important issue. And even just to say a a bit about, um, you know, the migrant led churches, particularly in the Republic of Ireland, many of them have joined uh, the Irish Council of Churches, that ecumenical body, and are bringing their perspectives to, you know, debates about what churches can do to contribute to the common good and so forth. Some research I did a few years back, um, people talked about how some of these migrant led churches and Orthodox churches as well, um, often led by migrants brought a kind of refreshing perspective to the ecumenical debate because they were not so mired, if that's the right word, in the traditional um, religious divisions of this island. So, so thank you.
0: And continuing with that vein of thought, Gladys, um, Anne-Louise has posed the question that how do we bring people together to educate, to pray together, and to learn from each other's history, both in the UK, the Republic of Ireland, and in Ireland, and to promote socialising together?
3: What does that look like in practice to you? Just unmute myself again. So, I mean, that's <laughs> that's a big question, I suppose. And I mean, at bringing people together, you know, quite often happens at grassroots at a local level. Um, in Northern Ireland, there'd be interchurch forums that have tried to do this for years. Um, with uh, church councils um, in the Republic of Ireland and and so forth, and also groups that aren't necessarily Christian as well do this type of work. And again, some of the Christian examples I mentioned, Glenn Cree in my talk and Cory Mila. So there are models that exist um, of grassroots groups that have practiced, I suppose you would call it, uh, focus-facilitated dialogue over the years. They have um, a long history of creating these safe spaces and trying to cultivate relationships um, between uh, people of, of you know, different perspectives and so forth which is all well and good. And I mean, my own research and research of others has found that those groups have had a positive impact. People have changed their identities and so on and so forth. But there's also the inherent limitations because um, it happens at such a small scale, it's really hard to scale it up <laughs> to the wider population. And also the people who actually make the commitment to participate in those groups perhaps already have uh, an inclination um, towards um, doing that. Anyway, if, if you you see what I'm um, saying. so there's models that exist for, for what works. We, we can replicate that, but I suppose what I would say is that significant um, challenges remain. Um, and you know, I suppose the, the other aspect that's always mentioned is um, such dialogue ideally would happen when people are, are younger as well, um, you know, so that it becomes um, embedded from that um, period of youth. Um, yeah, so thanks.
0: Thank you Gladys. I've um, got some more questions, but we'll give you a breather for a moment <laughs> to turn to Katie. Uh, Katie, we've got a question here from Timothy Plum um, and Timothy is asking, uh, how do you see border communities dealing with the past and the protocol today, particularly amongst the Protestant Unionist Loyalist community? Um, and Timothy is asking, is that a question of commemoration of the UK and, and pushback against the protocol or uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, Thank you, interesting question. So I'm doing some research at the moment, building on work that I was doing with the Irish Central Border Area Network um, from 2017 onwards about the impact of Brexit in the central border region. And we are looking now um, at the impact of Brexit and the protocol, bearing in mind that it's impossible to, um, in many ways, it's difficult to distinguish between the effects of those two things. Um and uh, I think it's, in some ways it's early days. I mean, the most uh, direct impact that we're finding so far, often anecdotally, but um, unsurprisingly perhaps, is just how um, uh, how live a political issue the protocol has become. And um, <clears throat> I when I was preparing with my colleague um, David Fenimore to be doing some research on the protocol, we were planning surveys and um sort of public engagement on the matter and our big concern in 2020 was that no one would have heard about the protocol no one would be that bothered about it um that's not the case as it turns out everybody has heard about the protocol and has an opinion on it and that opinion is divisive and polarizing or, or there's polarized opinions around it because it's, of course it's been um it seems to sort of overlay on top of unionist and nationalist opinions um I think the effect of that political division, um, as it's particularly wrought out now between unionists and nationalists and others, um, as the sort of pro-remain side, um, that division is particularly worrying in the border region, given that uh, given the concerns around the impact that Brexit would have on those um, close relationships. So we saw over the past few years that already. There was a chilling effect relation to Brexit. People were worried about the implications for community relations across the border and in border communities. Um, and this, of course, is exacerbated by fears around um, reduction in funding for certain groups, et cetera. And we, we do have a, a risk of a gap in funding in some areas. So there's this, there's a sort of the, the mix of the political um, impact which is almost unavoidable and then of course the practical impact of all of this and i think just one last thing is to sort of recognize that the impact of brexit and the protocol is is a process and it's going to become more notable and noticeable over time and i'm not just talking about the price that consumers pay paying goods but also in in the border region and the risk of that sort of back-to-back development happening once more um uh, uh, for for various reasons so there's this kind of um there is this a- anxiety that uh that the although the future looks unknown it's also looking um to be one that's less the, the sort of inclement to good relations both between communities and across the border
0: um, and kitty to stay with you for a couple more minutes we have a question from john um and john is asking you was there anything that uh, you know 1921 that we should have learned from 1921 but we haven't necessarily learned as we embark on the 2021 discussions about the future
1: i'm tempted to say i'm tempted to say there's quite a lot of lessons to be learned for london uh, <laughs> um and i think that's part of the the worry in all of this the commemoration becomes an Irish concern, like Island of Ireland concern. Just as the impact of the protocol becomes a, an Island of Ireland Northern Ireland concern, and it's not, of course. Um, so just as partition was about the UK, the UK decision in the first instance, um, uh, the 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 decisions we made in London and the sort of the ramifications that it has here so far away and um, out of sight in many cases I, I think that that it's I think that's why things feel so worrying now that you can see a sort of a, a repetition of similar patterns which is in some ways extraordinary not just because of the nature you know communication and contact etc is so so much better and more intimate than it was then um, but also post good Friday Belfast agreement that we can have that situation. So that's quite worrying, but also more broadly, I mean, lessons in terms of recognizing that, you know, the compromises or sort of um, so-called sort of pragmatic solutions that involve borders, even though they're very carefully negotiated with diplomatic finesse, I mean, they need to be politically sold and they also need good information. And I think, again, we're seeing, uh, a, a lot of the damage being caused is around misinformation and misunderstanding. Um, so there are certain practical things g- that can be done uh, in recognition of um, the, the the how, how um, you know the long path to be drawn between a, a sort of drawing up a legal agreement and then implementing it on the ground with all the risks um, and difficulties that that entails.
0: Okay, thank you, Katie. Um, And we have a question here from Brendan Muldoon, which actually is addressed to all of our contributors this afternoon. But does uh, circle back there to Katie's point about myths and and misperceptions. Um, And Brendan is asking each of you to comment on how do we respond to the reality of different points of emphasis and different points of content that are um, part of the teaching of history in both Catholic and state, particularly many Protestant schools. Um, and Brendan notes that, for example, the history unit in the Northern Curriculum um, was titled Ulster and the Psalm. Um, and you didn't really sort of go any further th- than that. Um, and could impact, in fact, maybe have had like a different title, maybe focusing, for example, on Ireland and the First World War. There's a longer comment for you there in the Q&A box, which I'll read out,
3: but. Um, I'll hand that over to each of you to comment on. Who wants to go first? <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll just kind of jump in there. Um, confessing straight away my lack of knowledge of the history curriculum past and present <laughs> um, in Northern Ireland. Um, all I know is that in my, my travels, I met many people brought up in Northern Ireland who told me they didn't really learn history properly in school and that's <laughs> kind of the, the extent of it. But um, I mean, I think that you're, the question is right to highlight the different points of emphasis and content in the school teaching and how this um, contributes, I suppose, to reproducing um, polarized views of the other and um, it's it's the responsibility of schools and school curriculum I suppose as well but it's also the responsibility I think of maybe given all one a nudge here public history (laughs) uh, to, to educate the wider citizenry that history is I suppose an argument right it's like part of understanding history is understanding that there are different perspectives and maybe if we even just come at it with that mindset um maybe that can be a helpful thing and i mean churches cannot you know, this is my specialty you know churches can also play a role in trying to communicate a more complex um view of history and you know talk about how in the past our religious tradition maybe has used theology to justify violence but you know we have changed we can perhaps change and rework our religious tradition to justify peace as well and to give an, a, a public view of religion is something that's not eternal and set in stone but it's something that changes over time um, as well so public communication from church leaders and churches about that also maybe could be a helpful um contribution to how we understand um history yeah thanks for that i uh, appreciate the uh, plug there absolutely
2: but i agree that that we do have a problem with the way education of history is dealt with um in our society and obviously you know as somebody who teaches history Very often I find that um, the undergrads that are sitting in my room, this is the first time they've had the opportunity to have these conversations with each other um, and to deal with history collectively, um, in particular the history of Ireland. So it's definitely a challenge. Uh, And I would agree that the the public history sector has a huge part to play um, in, in filling that gap in some ways and providing those spaces where conversations can take place that, that bring in different perspectives and allow people to explore Irish history uh, from a range of perspectives and more holistically um, than is very often the case. Um, museums obviously are, are an important part of that, but I would also point to the really excellent work that's happening at community level and some of the, the, the great community engagement programs among young people um, that we're seeing happening. And it's something I think that we need to encourage uh, as much as possible, and uh, for example, it's good to see the universities starting to get involved in that uh, engagement with uh, people on the ground as well. Uh, as I say, filling that gap. It's
1: instructive to add just a little anecdote, which may amuse. So, um, uh, so every year I used to take students in, in my, um, one of my modules around the Troubles Gallery in the Ulster Museum that you had the picture of there, Alwyn. And uh, it was a good opportunity to have something concrete to discuss um, as a way of talking about the conflict, uh, but also educating them on it too, because as you say, many aren't necessarily taught it in school. And I remember asking uh, one tutorial class about why they thought it was gable walls with bits of roofs and things, but mainly gable walls, and one student said, well, that's because um, because of during the troubles when the planes would fly over and drop bombs on the houses. <laughs> so, so we sort of, in some ways, it's it's the the agreement generation, you know. And this is the real challenge that we have now, um, in sort of educating in a responsible way on on these really important matters. Um, and just a, a small little point. I mean, one thing looking ahead and being conscious of this being, you know, Trinity and Queens, I mean, the degree to which our students aren't familiar with each other, let alone wider communities. But I mean, that's really that's really um, something that needs to be addressed, I think, more regularly and concretely um, that they that not not only is there a sort of a lack of knowledge of recent past, but also lack of knowledge of familiarity with each other. Um, I'll just leave that there.
0: (laughs) That brings us very neatly onto a question here from Jonathan Ebershed. Um, And this question is for you, Owen. And um, Jonathan comments that, so really listening to Kitty's reflections today in particular, that partition isn't maybe so much a question of public history, but of contemporary politics. Um, And so should, can and should public history make more, more space, for contemporary political sociological interrogation of partition and how could that be done?
2: Okay, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I suppose, I suppose, ultimately, public history is about history, is about the past. Um, but I think it has a hugely important role to play in dealing with the present and the future. Um, I would absolutely agree that the partition, in particular, is such a contemporary issue. It's so. Um, much of now and and where we go from here almost um, and therefore I think any any attempt by any public history organization or initiative to explore partition has to do it in some ways with that in mind and should be doing it with that in mind um, that it's not enough to look back at 100 years ago and say well this is the experience of, of life then it's well where are we now and and what do we do with what we have at the moment? And I think there's so much to be done in that space understanding and exploring um, how, I suppose, even to take one particular aspect of of society, but how Northern Irish society even, uh, or Irish society as a whole, we look at both sides of the the border, how much more diverse it is now, how much more, how many more perspectives there are how many more identities and voices there are and how do we hear those voices and and what are those voices saying. Um, So There's lots and lots of questions I think that need to be asked about where we are today and how we go forward, particularly taking something as difficult as partition um, that has such uh, repercussions in our society today. Um, actually thing, I actually think I we did an event with the with the Austrian Museum and National Museums Northern Ireland on Wednesday night, in which we looked at their um, new partition uh, exhibition. And it's interesting that you asked that question because uh, their approach is going to be here's the history of partition, okay? So they've got objects that deal with with then. The middle part of it is, here's where we are now. And then the third element is, where do we go next? And I think that's a really interesting and important um, approach for uh, public history organizations to be taking, because it's very much about the present and the future.
3: Can I I just add a comment um, there to what Alwyn just said? Um, Because it reminds me of the, there's an organization in the North here, the junction in dairy and healing through remembering another organization, they'll quite often use this phrase remembering for the future, right? So <laughs> they're, they're casting the past, you know, not just in the present analyses, which um, Jonathan was asking about, but also with this view to the future. And that's kind of what Alwyn ended up her response with there. And that's how, when in my original contribution, I was trying to, to, to push in that direction as well that, you know, The whole point of uh, reflecting on this and remembering this is that we somehow get a better future out of it. We can't forget the past. That's an impossible uh, dream, right? (laughs) You can't forget the traumatic events of the past, but the way you remember them with an eye on the future is for a better future that doesn't repeat the tragedy of the past. So I think that future orientation is one of the most helpful things that we can try to keep at the the forefront of the the debate.
0: Thanks, Gladys. Um, There's a really interesting question that links on to that point, actually, here from John Powell. And I think John is joining us from the States. Um, and the question is for Owen, but you may wish to comment more broadly. Um, and John is asking, has any thought been given to creating traveling exhibits that could be used to visit different states in the US um, and to reach out to different communities to help them, including elected leaders in the US who've never really been exposed to the history of Ireland or Northern Ireland? Um, so that they can more actively and perhaps more knowledgeably engage um, and help with the preservation of the Good Friday Agreement.
2: That's actually a really interesting question. Uh, fascinating um, idea. I, the, the answer to the question is I don't know. Um, I, I'm, I have a feeling that, that certainly um, representatives of the museum sector have traveled to the US but I don't think exhibitions to the best of my knowledge have traveled but I think this a massive amount of potential there and it's something that certainly I would like to to explore I know um we've had opportunities to bring people from the U.S. here um whether it's students or academics or practitioners from the public history sector to explore some of the issues here but I think actually being able to take what is happening in Ireland and and take that to the U.S. I think could be incredibly powerful um, I think there's real resonance actually for some of the issues that's facing uh countries such as the U.S. at the minute. As Well, in terms of of how we represent our past in public spaces and and what that means to everybody um, who's engaged and involved in that. So I think those are conversations that I definitely would like to see happening.
0: Super, thank you. I I thought it was such an interesting idea myself. Um, Katie, can we turn the spotlight back on you? We have a a question from Catherine here, Um, and Catherine is asking, how do you think we can look beyond borders as methods of control to developing relationships with the EU in the next few years? So, a not insignificant question.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think, so borders are gonna become more and more in vogue, if you like. Um, certainly we've seen this for some time. We, before Brexit, um, within the European Union, and uh, I was doing a study in 2015, 16, looking at the building, lit- like literally physical building of borders between member states. Um, of course, that was in response to increased immigration. And so you're right that um, you know borders are a sort of a totemic issue, and we're certainly going to be seeing more discussion around borders in the EU's external borders, um, vis-a-vis Scotland, for example, whatever might be happening there. Um, I think one little, well, two things to bear in mind, and maybe which are quite useful when we talk about borders, um, uh, and and if we're trying to think about them in not just about controls and not in a sort of simplistic binary terms. So one is to think of them as meeting points. Like they're literally lines of connection. We tend to think of them as barriers and divisions, but often pointed as it is where obviously countries meet regions meet, um, and therefore there are particular cultures and communities and types of economy, etc., that that gather up um, around borders, which have an identity of their own and a certain richness. Um, but there's also a, a, another way of thinking about borders is that they don't sort of exemplify, they don't just sort of manifest sovereignty, they also show its limitations. Um, And so one way of thinking of this is that it's possible for one side of a border to, uh, jurisdiction one side, to to harden that border, this is a unilateral action. But if you want an open border, it needs action and cooperation on both sides. Um, And in many cases, of course, open borders are good things economically, socially, culturally, et cetera. Um, which goes back to that point I was sort of trying to convey towards the end there in my presentation which was about relationships being key to it all um and there's no such you know there's literally no such thing as sort of um, imposing a border and letting it do the work as I say it's human activity that makes it both in terms of institutional operation and also imagination too so I think it's sort of to, to sort of, answer that question it is just um, querying uh, some of the assumptions that we naturally take on when we think about borders as boundaries and barriers um, just sort of recognize um, actually there's there's much more to it than that uh, including within and around the EU um, um, as well as outside it. Thanks
0: Katie. We are rapidly running out of time and we have a host of unanswered questions here. Um, but there's one very fitting question that I thought would be um, appropriate to end on this afternoon. It's a question from Premesh Lalu, and it goes to all three of our panellists. Um, and Premesh makes the point that um, they've been struck by how Seamus Heatney's Cure at Troy influenced the pursuit of reconciliation in much of the post colonial world in 1990. Um, and Premish asks, is there a way in which we might consider the Irish experience of partition in relation to other post-colonial experiences in India and South Africa, for example? Um, and so if any of you would like to offer your reflections and your suggestions on whether it might help to think um, of the Irish experience from another shore, as Shema put it.
1: I I'll just say we so um definitely, uh, obviously, uh, that's a really important lens through which to try and understand the situation here. And one thing that is quite interesting is quite how often when we think of uh, comparative analyses um from Ireland, they tend to be very different for the south compared to the north. And so often the north, we do make comparisons with um, countries suffering the consequences of partition, or indeed contested uh, divisions etc, like uh, Sri Lanka for example, Um, and it's it's much less usual necessarily to see that uh, sort of on an island-wide basis, so definitely um, there's many lessons to be learned from those colonial experiences of partition, and also recognizing. I saw another comment there in the question about the experience across Europe at the time, and that's the thing that is really striking is just quite how European, if you like, in many ways um, the Irish experience is, um, as well as a sort of a, a post-colonial experience. Can I, can
2: I just um, just add to that? Um, th- I think it's really, you know, we we can learn here so much in terms of how we present traumatic or or difficult um, histories by looking at how this is done in other places. But I think we also, um, through our experience, have have much to teach um, and have, have the opportunity to use our experiences in many ways. Um, If we can present that, you know, going back again to the question about taking what we're doing uh, to other contexts, uh, there's so much to be gained from conversations um, across different contexts to learn from mistakes as well as what we've done well, to learn from common experience as well as different experiences. And I think the more those conversations can happen and the more we can facilitate those conversations, I think the better.
3: I have probably have about 30 seconds. Um, but just to even to, to link that question back you know to the earlier panel this morning for those of you who were here, even just bringing, I suppose um, poetry and the arts, et cetera, back into that conversation. I mean I just want to highlight that as well as an important aspect of um, you know dealing with legacy issues in Ireland um, and and elsewhere. So so thank you. Super, thank you, everybody.
0: Um, that brings us, unfortunately, to the close of this afternoon's panel session. Apologies to anyone whose question uh, didn't get the airtime it deserved this afternoon, but it was, I hope you'll agree, an extremely rich discussion. I'd like to close by offering my thanks. Um, It's been an absolute privilege to be able to chair this discussion this afternoon. But most importantly, to Alwyn, to Katie and to Gladys, thank you for sharing your expertise with us this afternoon and for such thought-provoking presentations um, and equally insightful comments and uh, answers in the Q&A session. But secondly, my thanks goes to Professor Richard English at Queen's University Belfast and to the team at the Trinity Long Room Hub for putting this excellent event together. I look forward to seeing many of these conversations continuing in the near future. Thank you, everybody. The Hub is a community.
1: Manuscript, book, and print cultures stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the time seen, of the Year Library.
2: As
0: well as being heard. The Hub is a space
2: contemplating Ireland through the communities this created start, by cultural changes. changes. The Hub is about impact.
1: The Hub is for everyone of
3: Feminism. Here's to the next ten years.